Bobby Harrington has led at all levels. He's led United States Marines in combat. He's led huge teams in multi-billion dollar industries. He's led people all over the world. And on today's episode of Unbeatable, Bobby and I just get real about the challenges of leadership. Bobby talks about your greatest challenge as a leader and how he can help you lead you, lead yourself better. So hang on and strap in for my conversation with Bobby Harrington on this episode of Unbeatable. Now, before we get into the leadership discussion, let me remind you about the guys and gals from the Solomon Foundation who are helping to underwrite this episode. The Solomon Foundation is committed. They're going to help the local church grow, but they're also going to help you. And the way that they do that is by giving you an excellent return while you make an eternal impact. So why don't you go check them out? Go to thesolomonfoundation.org. Now, Bobby and I have a honest conversation where we both nerd out a little bit on leadership. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Hey, Bobby, thank you for being willing to be a guest with me on this episode of Unbeatable. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. Much appreciated. I guess I should start off the whole conversation by simply saying to you, simplify, man. Oh, simplify. Yeah, for sure. I love the Eagle Globe and anchor in the background. So for everybody who's listening that is not familiar with the United States Marine Corps, of course, that's your logo in the background. And that is what all Marines live up to, that always faithful motto, right? That's right. 100%. Yeah. Appreciate Um, that. I'm going to nerd out during this conversation. And we're just going to have a conversation about leading people. Um, because I think like you, I kind of fell into this, wasn't looking forward to looking for it, fell into leadership and then, um, learned to love it and really, really love it along the way. But it didn't start out, start out that way, man. So let's try to, let's try to work backwards right now. Um, you do some leading at a really high level. Can you tell folks, uh, about the way that you lead in the petroleum industry right now? Right. So I retired uh, six months ago from Chevron and, uh, you know, I had the privilege to work for them for uh, almost 19 years and, uh, you know, worked all over the world, uh, China, uh, Nigeria, uh, places like that. And uh, yeah, at at the end of the day, uh, you know, we had uh, about 150 people on our team, $34 million budget and uh, working between, you know, an executive team uh, on site. Uh, working with a technical team in Houston and then, you know, working with some folks in California as well. So, you know, it was a, on any day, it was a good challenge, right? Not only to to people lead, but, you know, you're kind of always in a figure eight, you know, as as they call it, you know, you're always in between, you know, two or more entities. So it was was definitely a good challenge. Did you live in all of those countries that you just mentioned, or did you just do big projects there? Yeah, no, great question. So, uh, you know, in Chevron and oil and gas, the way it works is a lot of times these expat assignments are a, a 28 and 28 rotation, meaning 
you're in country for 28 days and you're home for 28 days. So it's kind of like many deployments, you know, every 28 days, you know, you're, you're shipping out. That is hard on a family, man. That's hard on anybody personally, especially man. when you're 13 time zones away from where you live, um, oh, but yeah. hard on a family too. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of folks would joke that, you know, when we go home, we're actually interrupting the family, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you. the first couple of rotations when you leave, it's pretty traumatic, you know, for the family. But after a while, you know, people are resilient, you know, especially kids. And, you know, the wife, you know, sort of gets used to what you're doing. And, you know, they have, the, they have their own routine, you know. So when you, when you come home, you kind of have the realization that, you know, I need to integrate back into them, right? Bobby, you are a smart, I'm impressed, man. You are a smart man. A lot of guys that I know don't learn that lesson or learn that lesson way too late that, yeah, yeah. your family's got everything taken care of while you're gone and you don't just barge back in the door and start barking orders and telling everybody what to do because you're almost like a <laughs> guest when you go back home after being away for 28 days or for 18 months, whatever. Amen. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm not an expert, but I live in the United States. And of course, as oil prices change, so does the entire economy. Yours was the industry that people all over the world love to hate. But I don't think most of the listeners understand just how volatile and just how challenging the energy industry is in general, but especially Chevron and, you know, the petroleum industry. So I've watched them put up record profit numbers, and then I've watched them two months later put up record losses, the kind, of, the kind of money in billions of dollars in a month or two that most people would faint when they saw those kind of losses. Yeah. Can you describe just a little bit about how difficult that industry, leading at a high level is hard no matter where you're at, but leading in a difficult industry like that is even more challenging. Yeah. So can you talk about some of the challenges of the petroleum industry, especially over the last five, six, eight years? Yeah, no, it, it is volatile because, you know, there's six, over 6,000 products made from oil and gas, right? The lipstick your wife wears, the tires we drive on, so on and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a commodity that's needed and uh, we won't be pivoting away from oil and gas uh, yeah, anytime soon. Yeah, I just want to... Yeah, I want to make sure people understand Elon Musk is not going to make the lipstick that your wife wears go away, um, no matter what. <laughs> you know, there's well, still... he he might, but not tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say there's a lot of products out there that petroleum touch. Sorry, man, go for it. No, tr for true, uh, for certain. Um, yeah, so oil and gas, you know, it's really sensitive, and it goes uh, to like where all the reserves are at. Most reserves are in the Middle East, so when something happens in the Middle East. You know, speculators get a hold of that news and, you know, that affects prices. You know, it's also, you know, believe it or not, it's predicated on supply and demand. Now, who controls supply and demand? Well, that's a dance between OPEC and, you know, the leaders of the West, right? Yeah. Uh, but oil and gas contracts and expands, you know, every five to seven years. So, you know, you'll go through a hiring spree, then you go through a downsizing. And I went through five of those. You know, that's why I have a lot of passion around change. Because during those big change events, you know, I've seen them done very well where folks leaned on, you know, the pillars of change, which is uh, engagement and uh, uh, transparency. Yeah. And some have, have not done well, 
Right. And some of these events, these selection events can last for nine months. So, you know, you got people sitting in their queues for nine months, not knowing what's going on. You know, what do you think the productivity is? And, and that's yeah, the thing you're after right. during a, yeah, that's the thing you're after during a, cha- uh, during a change event is uh, to preserve the operational efficiency, you know, so to speak. Um, yeah, oil and gas is really challenging. And what it boils down to is, you know, we have our one-year, three-year, five-year plans, but it boils down to a, uh, you know, a 12-month plan or a monthly plan. Yeah, right. You know, when it, when it comes to oil, because, you know, more barrels you put through the pipe, you know, the more profit, you know, for the company, because, you know, oil and gas, yes, while lucrative, it is expensive as well. You know, uh, large projects can can go into the, you know, 50 billion mark, right? And take four or five years to construct. You know, so there's a lot of expense that goes into that and exploration uh, and just, you know, running the business. You know, uh, oil and gas jobs have some of the best benefits, uh, you know, that you can get today. Well, I only ask thank you, by the way, for explaining that. Um, that's sure. not what the purpose of this podcast is. But I, I ask you to describe that because I hope the listeners didn't miss a big project in your industry is a five-year project that may cost a company $50 billion. And there's no guarantee that you're going to make that money, uh, make that money back. So I watched the industry, you know, post record profits in one quarter, we made $37 billion. And then six months later, hey, we just lost $25 billion. And most industries can't survive that kind of volatility. Right. And then yeah. you describe this cycle of ups and downs. They're not entirely predictable. So with that comes all of the challenges of leading. And leading is always a people business, as you and I both know, Bobby. So 100%. What I want to get into is how did you end up learning to lead? I really want you to talk about your time in the Marine Corps and maybe even in the Gulf War here. And how did you learn the, the bigger question that I want you to camp on for a few minutes is how did you learn to love to lead? Because when I started leading, I really didn't love it. In fact, I kind of hated it. And then there was a transition that had to happen. So tell me how this went for you, man. Sure. So, you know, great question. I've, I've always got to give credit to my parents. Uh, my father was a World War II Korea and Vietnam veteran. Uh, Wait a second. Time. He served, he, he had, he served in all three of those wars, World War II, Korea and Vietnam? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. He, he was, uh, yeah, he was the quintessential greatest generation. Never heard him complain once. Uh, always seen him work hard, never left a task unfinished. Uh, you know, so, you know, having said that, you know, it was a lot to live up to, but at the same time, I'm sure, you know, as well as I, you know, when you're immersed in that environment, it rubs off. Yeah. Right. And so my mom, you know, her family was from Yugoslavia. We came here with nothing. My my grandfather learned to teach, uh, or we learned English. And then, you know, when folks would come over, he'd teach English. Um, they wound up in Wyoming, you know, bought a ranch and stuff. And But they're tough people, man. They're tough people. Serbians, really tough. Um, so with my mom, you know, she was an even harder worker than my dad. Wow. Right? Okay. That's <laughs> impressive. If your mom is outworking your dad. Oh, for sure. For sure. And uh, I mean, she had arms this big, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, we go <laughs> out to the woods. Eastern European woman <laughs> oh, with, yeah. uh, you know, hard as, uh, you know, tough as, as nails, right? Yeah. You know, my dad was quiet, but like she was fiery, 
You know what I'm saying? Awesome. So, you know, we'd go cut wood and, you know, she'd be the one carrying the biggest logs, you know, and, uh, <laughs> man, there was no quitting. You know, you stayed there all this, day until it was done. Sorry, man. I just got this mental image of your mom and dad having a competition to carry the most firewood back to the <laughs> back to the ranch, and, and your mom is winning. Um, I love this imagery, and and I, I, I'm it's not I'm not missing the fact that you came from a pretty amazing gene pool. Well, no, well listen to this, man. Uh, my dad worked overseas for Brown and Root right after he retired. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we had two acres, and we had a push mower. And my mom would push mow two acres. Now, mind, mind you, this is South Louisiana. You know, this is not Ohio or, you know, Arizona, right? Uh, 100 degrees humidity, 100 100% degrees humidity, yeah. 100% sure. humidity, 100 degrees out, you know. And, uh, you know, as soon as we could stand up, you know, we were helping her, you know, push behind her and, and stuff like that. So, you know, man, it just rubbed off. Like, if you want to do anything or go anywhere, you had to work. And, you know... I think my mom taught me the most humility because like, if you want to go somewhere, she might say, go plant flowers, right. Or go weed the flower bed or vacuum the house or something like that. And like, there was no questioning or bargaining. It was like, you did it, you know, it's just, just how it was. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah. Th so that was the beginning, you know, so I was well prepared for the Marine Corps because my, my mother was meticulous. She was a perfectionist. Uh, you never saw dust. You never saw dust anywhere in the house. Va vacuum the house twice a day, like just a constant, you know, worker. Um, See, so yeah, I credit them. And then, uh, you know, playing football, you know, uh, from age se seven, you know, they gave me a lot of structure. And that was my first introduction to sort of organized, you know, leadership, right? So there's this one person and like he, he's the coach and, you know, he's the leader. And probably between age seven and 19 played one year in college. I probably had seven or eight coaches. Uh -huh. And so, you know, that also gave me a look into the spectrum of how people lead. Like I didn't know what leadership was right when I was younger, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, even, even up to 13, 14, you know, but you know, you saw these like random personalities and you saw how different personalities, you know, sometimes got the same result. Yeah, sure. Right. So, you know, you kind of learn what works and kind of what, you know, doesn't work personality wise. Um, then in the Marine Corps is probably really where, you know, the light bulb went off, <clears throat> you know, obviously during boot camp, you know, the Marine Corps teaches leadership and they teach leadership the same way to every rank. Right. right. So, you know, there's a, it's not a, you know, there's no big question mark why the Marines are so successful. Right. You know, it's it's uh it's meeting the standard, you know, and, and always like not sometimes, but always. And if you're not, your peers are going to let you know, your subordinates are going to let you know, and your superiors are certainly going to let you know. <laughs> so, so you got a three three prong attack, you know, uh, of meeting the standards. <clears throat> but uh, after boot camp, uh, General Gray at the time is a commandant of the Marine Corps. He started what's called Marine Combat Training where for 28 days, every Marine, regardless of MOS, will go to Marine combat training, learn to be a rifleman and uh, a warfighter first before they did anything else. So I don't know why uh, the sergeant picked me, you know, to, to lead the squad. 
And for 28 days, uh, you know, I was a squad leader and, you know, got called every name in the book and seemed like I couldn't do anything right. Yep. Yep. And, uh, but yet I kept getting these assignments of increasing responsibility, you know? Um, so all that said and done, I, I was platoon honor man, uh, for that cycle yeah, of Marine combat right. training. Yeah. And, uh, so that's when the, the light really went off that, you know, well, Hey, I really don't know what I'm doing being a leader, but I did it. <laughs> right. And it was, it was kind of the weirdest thing. And, you know, that's, Actually, when I started to love leadership, even though it was it was hard, it was quirky, you know, you don't know what moves to make, right? I mean, that was like 1989, 1990. You know, okay, yeah, there were books, but there was no, you know, sure. internet where you could go yeah. get information or, yeah. you know, none, none of the stuff that exists today where you can know anything about everything in, in like five hours. Um, so it was kind of a trial by fire thing. And then getting to the fleet Marine Corps where you go to your first duty station, you know, I realized very quickly that I needed to be humble because I was outranking some, I was 20, 19, 20, 21. And I was outranking some 27 and 28 year olds, you know, that had, that had been busted down and like, they really didn't care. And I actually wrote an article about this, you know, they didn't care that outrank them. The one thing they cared about was respect, right? Mutual respect. So that's, that's where I learned, you know, more humility, more mutual respect, more of asking, you know, in, in the right way, you know? So, yeah, that, that's kind of the journey of, of how everything got started. And then, you know, for the last 34 years, I've not only practiced leadership in, in the trenches, Right. I've always been in the operations and execution side, um, but I've studied and I've observed leaders every step of the way. Well, you and I started leading about the same time. I joined the U.S. Army 1987, got promoted to the rank of sergeant about 89 and uh, started leading. I think I was 88 or 89 that I got promoted to the rank of sergeant and started leading. And man, it was harder, a lot harder than I expected. Um, although I had a little bit of leadership opportunities in school before I joined the army, leading in the military is no joke, especially leading in the military during a time of combat, mm. which you did. Can so can you tell a little bit about what you experienced your role in the Gulf War um, back in Kuwait and Iraq, um, 1980, I mean, 1991? Yeah, so um, we, we were in 29 Palms. Actually, no, this was in Okinawa before I went, before uh, I was in 29 Palms, I was in Okinawa. Yeah. And we we're doing uh, some training there. And, uh, you know, this guy comes out, you know, kind of draped in a dress and, you know, headgear and stuff. And like, yeah, you know, something's brewing. And like, we didn't really, like, couldn't figure out what was going on. And uh, then when it got to 29 Palms, we started seeing things on the news. You know, so we we were part of first force service support group, first FSSG. And within uh, a force service support group, you have three CSSDs, combat service support detachments. So we're one of three CSSDs that went over to to Saudi. So we landed in Jabal and we stayed there for probably three or four days. Um, one night, you know, how big GP tents are, right? 
So yes, of course. We, For we had a whole listen, those big green circus tents where you just throw everything and everybody underneath it, and it gets really messy and underneath those tents pretty quick. Yeah, and you know there was such an influx of people. Yeah, there was not enough room for everyone to be comfortable, right? So we had a whole platoon uh, split between two two GP tents, right? Right. So that that's pretty tight with gear and you know everything you brought over there, your whole kit. Um. So all they told us before we left, we didn't have any workup training or anything like that. Was yeah, you know, it's probably a good chance. You know, there's going to be some nerve gas or mustard grass, mustard gas. Say. The you know, stuff like that. Threat of chemical or, or <laughs> biological attack. Yes. You know, the one thing we did do is drill with mop, our mop gear, right? Uh, uh-huh. That's the military protective gear for for chemicals. If, if people don't know, and it's real, uh, it's real bulky, and you start sweating real, real fast. It's charcoaly, like you know, on the inside, especially and, in the 130 degree heat of the of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So you know, we went to bed. You know, hit the rack one night and. Um, in the middle of the night, a Patriot missile goes off, right? And, you know, you got to understand, like it knocked out all the electricity. So we're in the dark and, you know, there are people shouting commands, you know, mop level four, right? And that mop level four means, hey, put everything on. You know? Yeah, gloves, Bloody's boots, pants. everything. I remember it all. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And so, you know, imagine, you know, 15 people inside of a GP tent trying to do all that concurrently. So when the light came on, you know, this was after about four or five minutes, zero people had on all their gear. I was going to say, I got this mental image right now of people just a mess with people having all kinds of stuff backwards and upside down, right? A total cluster, total cluster. Uh, We would all been, you know, uh, cooked, cooked for sure. Right. Um, But that was my first introduction to an unexpected loud boom. You know, if you've ever heard a Patriot missile go off, uh, man, it's loud. It explodes out of the tube and then takes off. It's loud as hell. Uh, so <clears throat> after the shock of that, you know, we we went forward. Our uh, platoon, our company rather, was tasked with constructing an EPW camp. All right. And for those who don't know what EPW means, it means enemy prisoner of war, right? So we went forward. Um, we're in between Kabrit and the uh, Kuwaiti border. And I don't know exactly where we were because there's nothing there. It's just just sand. So we uh, we land there at night, obviously, like Marines do. Everything's nocturnal. <clears throat> Next day, we get up and break out our kit and start mapping out this this uh, this compound. And, you know, a lot of our gear didn't make it, <laughs> you know, you know, a triple strand concert team yeah, is right. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I was a combat engineer. So as a combat engineer, that's a central part of our role is to you know, string that type of wire and, you know, build tetrahedrons and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that explosives, but uh, our gauntlets didn't make it right. And, and gauntlets are a, a leather glove that, you know, it appears to have uh, staples in it. So when you're handling wire, right, you don't poke yourself. Well, we built that camp with patrol gloves, right? So, <laughs> and cut so, yourself to pieces, shredded oh, your man. hands to pieces, putting like, that wire up. Yeah, it's like yep. razor blades, you know. Yep. But, uh, you know, we got it done. And, uh, you know, so once the frame of it was up, you know, they asked us to build uh, shells for GP tents. Well, 
our hammers didn't make it either. So we had to use ball peen hammers. Oh you know, my goodness. Man. Ball peen hammers don't have a claw. <laughs> and so the nails we received were from Poland and not a di not to diss Poland, but you know, whenever you hit one of these nails, if you didn't hit it perfect, it did like that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the day, we, we got the camp built and uh, we did eventually got 50, some help from the CB. 50 million nails later, you got the yes. camp built. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, talk about suffering, but, you know, everyone was in it together. And, you know, if you know anything about Marines, Marines are always complaining, right? But here's the thing. Sure. Always, it's, always, it's, are always working as well. Yeah. Right? I was going to so, say, you get scared when they stop complaining. That's when start, it starts to get really scary. Exactly. So, you know, got the whole thing built, got help from the CBs, um, got a couple of- By the way, uh, toughest or the hardest working people in the entire U.S. military, the U.S. Navy CBs. Yeah, yeah. Love no, those they, guys to death. They came in, built the chow hall. Unfortunately, the chow hall wasn't for us, it was for the prisoners. You know, we had to eat MREs while they were eating Classic. hot rice. And, yeah, Classic. You know. Yeah. Now, we had we had a few midnight acquisitions, you know, if you know what I mean. Sure. But- yeah. uh we got the camp built, and uh, at its height, I think we had about 8,000 uh, prisoners come through. Uh, we started making runs to the front, you know, uh -huh. to receive the prisoners because, uh, you know, once everything started, it was uh, it was kind of anticlimactic. There are a lot of surrendering. You know, folks yeah. have been in these bunkers for 30 days with no food and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So, uh, you know, we had to deal with a lot of folks who are very disheveled and, you know, just not very well, you know. Uh, and most of them, you know, weren't even trained fighters. Oh yeah. You know, there was one guy we had on our bus. He was from Chicago. Uh, he was on vacation and he got conscripted. <laughs> yeah. True story. You know, he was back wow. there singing Ebony and Ivory. It's like, yeah. well, where do you know that from? It's, right. it's like, man, man, I'm from Chicago, you know? It's like, <laughs> yeah, but I remember, I, I went over there myself. I remember people surrendering by the tens of thousands. I think when yeah. it was over with 150,000 people had surrendered because of the merciless bombing. And also because most of them, I, I didn't sign up for this fight. I was forced out here. So sure. the idea of running a camp in the middle of a patch of desert in, the, in nowhere sounds absolutely, uh, you know, challenging to say the least. At this We're point. totally unprotected, totally unprotected. Yeah. We had 50 cows. We had 50 cow stations on the, on each corner, but you uh -huh. know, we couldn't, set them up, you know, per Geneva or what have you. Uh, we had an armory full of stuff. And there's, there's a, another story here too, is, um, one afternoon, you know, we saw a smoke cloud and then we saw two more smoke clouds, you know, and they were coming, you know, coming towards us in a linear, like, you mm -hmm. know, fashion. And it was, it was far off. Right. Uh, in other words, this is not natural. This is man-made coming at me. Exactly. And, uh, so, you know, the decision was made to sort of, you know, bug out and leave the facility. So in our, in our officers, infinite wisdom, they put all the weapons in the uh, armory and burned them, you know, uh, with incendiary grenades and, you know, all that stuff. And we, you know, took off on buses and, you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, that's, that was pretty much it. We constructed the EPW camp, you know, with that one little incident and, uh, yeah, there were thousands and thousands of prisoners that came through and they would come to our facility for a few days. You know, we'd go get them with buses, come to our facility. And then after a few days, after they'd been through an intelligence, uh, 
you know, not interrogation. I mean, there was a small tent there. I didn't think they were doing interrogation. They were doing more screenings. Um, we would take them to another, another place. So, and then, you know, that wound up, you know, fairly quick and, you know, we're there 90 days and then we're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anybody who knows the U.S. Marine Corps knows that you guys have great equipment, you have technology, you have a great mission, but the Marine Corps doesn't focus on any of those things. And I think rightly so, the Marine Corps is all about training Marines to be leaders. Um, one of the things that distinguishes the Marine Corps from the rest of the services is how every Marine is trained to be a combat leader. I've always looked at the Marine platoon leader course and thought that is something that every branch of the military should take and learn from. So obviously you were exposed to leadership in, in the home, you're exposed to leadership in sports, you're exposed to leadership in the military. When did you decide to separate from the Marine Corps and step into the civilian world? Yeah, no, great question. And it's one I've struggled with for a long time, you know. When I was when I was about to reenlist, President Clinton was uh, elected, right? I don't know if you remember that. And he decided to downsize. Yeah. Okay. And I was in a com downsize the U.S. military, like by about forty percent, if I remember yeah, the numbers correct. It was a uh, it was a big deal, and like I remember at that time, me, you know, like I was concerned about myself, but I was only 23 at the time. But there were some people who had been in 12, 14 years in combat roles. You know, so what do they do? You know, and, and they wanted to be lifers, right? So to get to my point, I could only reenlist in avionics, which is uh, electronics on airplanes, or O2 intelligence. And definitely didn't want to be in avionics. You know, I wanted to be a you know, to fight, you know. Uh, even though those folks support the fight, you know, to be, you know, in the action, I actually wanted to be a sniper going into the Marine Corps. That's another story as well. So didn't want to be in avionics and, uh, was probably not mature enough to know what intelligence was, you know, really. So I said, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and separate it this time, but no, I wanted to be a sniper and coming out of boot camp, my MOS was 0311. That's a grunt. But during Marine combat training, they changed it from 0311 to 1371 to combat engineer. So I didn't have the opportunity to uh, to be a grunt or try out for recon or, or anything like that. Yeah. You know? but, yeah, and, uh, and back in those days, as it is today, Marine snipers are some of the most talented snipers on the planet. Oh, um, yeah. Because of yeah, that sniper sure. course that you guys run. Yeah. Okay, so... Talk us through uh, just briefly transitioning out of the military. I hope for you, it was easier for me. I thought it was going to be simple, but it actually was much more of a challenge than I expected. You transition out of the military and into this, you know, into business. What was that transition like for you? And did you, did you have your mind set on the petroleum industry or did you just kind of follow, uh, you know, the path that was opened up in front of you? Yeah, no, great questions. You know, believe it or not, even after four years, it was, the transitioning was a struggle uh, because I I grasped on tight to process and procedure and standards, right? Funny Espe how the military will do that to you. Yeah, especially especially performance standards, right? Um, like even appearance, right? You know. When you first get out, it's hard for you to look at 
you know, civilians and, you know, eventually yourself, <laughs> you know, because you've just done it a certain way for so long, it just becomes part of, of who you are. Um, so I, you know, I struggle with isolation a little bit. Um, you know, I found that I didn't have a lot in common <laughs> with most civilians, rightly, you know, I was a combat yep. engineer. I know exactly um, what you're saying. Yep. Uh, you know, there's a lack of structure, you know, uh, in the military, there's, you're, you're part of a machine. You occupy a space in a larger machine. Um, in a civilian world, yes, um, but a lot of those lines are blurred, right? Um, so, you know, there's also stigma and stereotypes and, you know, trying to find your identity, you know, because, you know, like yesterday, you know, as a combat engineer, you know, today I'm, I'm a civilian, you know, and there's not a real big market for explosive experts, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was one company in Vegas and one in New York. Yeah, and, there's uh, some guys that are blowing up the side of a hill to build a road. But beyond that, there's not a big market <laughs> or not a big demand for for that. Yeah. So, you know, after I got, you know, past, you know, those, those few struggles, uh, I said, okay, you know, um, I'm from South Louisiana. That's where I went back to. And there's a lot of opportunity there in the oil field. And my cousin was a commercial diver. So uh, when I was in the Philippines, I went on a six-month uh, assignment in the Philippines when we were in Okinawa. Well, I learned to scuba dive there. And Were you at, Sub were you at Subic Bay? Yeah, that's where I went to yeah, Jungle Environment Survival that, Training. Man, yeah. check this out. How about that? <laughs> yeah, it's been, Way to go. <laughs> it's been six months there. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a whole other story for us to uh -huh. talk about. Sure. But uh, – but yeah, and uh, so I went to commercial diving school, you know, used my GI Bill and yeah. and did commercial diving for about a year and, you know, figured out that I was okay with isolation on land, but when you're offshore for 60 days at a time, you know, living with eight other people in a, in a berth, it just, I said, this is not going to be my gig. It's not going to be my gig, you know, so I cut bait there. And uh, while I was going to diving school, I, I took this elective named non-destructive examination. And so that's where you learn how to use different uh, electronics and techniques to test oil field equipment like piping and pressure vessels and large tanks. You know, you see these refineries, you know, it's about inspecting all that type of equipment. So I made a lateral move over to that. I did that for four to five years, you know, worked around the country, uh, during outages, refinery outages and, uh, started my own business in 2000 and had that until about 2004 worked overseas in a joint venture. Um, and then after that, I hired in with Chevron and, you know, spent a couple of decades almost with them. Yeah. yeah. When did you start leading at Chevron? Like, what did that look like for you? Uh, right away. Um, I was 35 when I joined Chevron and, uh, I had more leadership, you know, than most of the people that have been with the company, you know, 25 or 30 years, uh, from a training and, and practice perspective, right. In different, you know, uh, venues. <clears throat> so right away, um, and, uh, my first assignment in, in leadership was, uh, it was people leadership, but it was more technology innovation leadership, Right. Uh, I brought some some technology to Chevron. It's named Phased Array that, that wasn't in the company before. And I worked for eight years on uh, one specific application. 
and was able to, to bring that to fruition because I was obsessed with it. I, I knew it would work. And, uh, you know, a lot of people said it wouldn't. And, you know, we, we fought that every step of the way, but eventually, you know, after eight years, we perfected it and, uh, you know, save the company, you know, millions and millions of dollars on projects. In true Marine fashion, you never yeah. gave up on it. Too bad they didn't give you a little <laughs> kickback on all of the, you know, the, the savings that they made on your, you know, your hard work. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just happy to bring something new to the company and contribute yeah. to the overall mission. Right. And, right. Uh, and that's the thing, you know, everyone's, you know, everyone's got to have a, a mission. Everyone, I feel, I feel that everyone's got to be working towards some big thing, right? Uh, something bigger than themselves. And if you believe in it, if you believe, if you truly can see it and believe it's going to work, don't give up. Yeah, there you go. That's keep what I'm keep talking moving, about. keep moving. Because sometimes, a lot of times, no is the avenue to yes. And you have to understand clients, you know, and it goes back to that technology curve where you've got your early innovators on one side and you got your laggards on the other side. You know, you're, you're really competing for this small slice in the middle of people that you can bring over to, you know, the earlier side of adoption, right? You don't, you don't want to mess around with the laggards or the late adopters because they're there for a reason. To, yeah, you're not going to exactly. be able to convince them anyway, right? Exactly. So I, I teach people how to uh, meander through that as well, um, technology-wise, you know, in the technology talk- leadership. I was going to say, we're going to talk in just a second about the way that you're leading leaders. We're going to talk about lead you in just a moment, but I want people to hear from you, man, you start off at the kind of the ground level at the company. And then after lots of hard work and not giving up, you end up leading a pretty big team, more than a hundred people. You got a huge budget and no one guy can lead all of those people by themselves. So I am already here and you're figuring out how to lead other leaders. That is a transition that some people just don't do very well. Can you describe the transition of going from leading people to leading leaders of people um, and what that was like for you at Chevron? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's all about, you know, you know, believe it or not, in a large company like Chevron, you don't get, you don't pick your team. Right. And, uh, and that could be true for a lot of organizations. I was going to say, there's a lot of people listening right now that are like, oh, thank God. I thought it was just my company that doesn't let me pick my team, but apparently other companies don't either. Yeah. But you know, the point of it and the point of working with a span of control and the point of contributing through others is doing your absolutely, your absolute best with what you have to work with. Right. And that's, that's not just, your span of control, that's with what you have in yourself as well. But it's understanding each and every person in your span of control. Like my last assignment has been span of control of five, right? Um, And I knew those people intimately inside and out. I knew what buttons I could push. I knew what buttons not to push. You know, I knew when to be flexible. I knew when to be rigid. Uh, But always I kind of worked with these three maxims in mind. And I know that kind of sounds a little wordy or or buzzwordy, but I figured if I treated people how they wanted to be treated and I would grow and develop people and I would deliver the plan, those three things would make me successful in anything I did. And knock on wood, 
it, it's true. You know, if you treat people the right way and you grow and develop people, even your span of control, because people in your span of control are looking for their next response, your next assignment, right, of increasing responsibility. You know, they're just as ambitious as a yeah, subject matter expert. Yeah, everybody wants to move up. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, so you have to know about that and pay attention to that. And then, you know, we're all in the military. You're, there's a mission. In uh, the corporate world, there's a business plan. All right, it's a business plan every year. Everybody knows what it is. Everyone knows their role in that business plan. And that's that's another prime thing is, you know, People need to know what their role is, not only in the organization, but in this year's plan, right? So they need to feel important. They need to feel like their contributions are immediately impacting the overall mission. And that's the responsibility of a leader to articulate the why to people. You know, this this sort of gets into strategy, tactics, and operationalizing things, right? Strategy is always the what, Tactics is always the how, and operationalization is marrying strategy and tactics, right? Um, and when you teach people to do that, you know, they they can see the big picture. Um, but one of the things I tried to focus on was teaching people how to lead through change. And, it, you know, leading through change is not just the big change event, like a, a, a downsizing or a restructuring of the organization. Change is sort of omnipresent. Right. With people, there's there's micro change within a person, you know, they might have lost a loved one. They might have got divorced. Um, they have a new assignment. That's a change. You know, maybe there were there were a subject. And you you'll see this happen a lot in the corporate world. A person is a subject matter expert. And they do something really, really well. And all of a sudden, leadership wants to make that person a, a people leader. And they've had zero people leadership say, experience. Those two things don't always translate. Yep. No, no, they don't. And, uh, you know, I was always careful, careful to help people that, that sort of came from being an SME right into a people leader, right? Because that's, it's a lot of, uh, it's a heavy weight. That's a hard jump to make right there. Yep. It's a hard jump from individual to leading other people because as an individual, you know, yes, you are working as a member within a team for the greater good, but we all have wanted to develop ourselves for more enrichment, more opportunity, you know, and guess what? Anyone who picks up a gun, you know, military wise, you know, they're ambitious, right? They're, they're running towards the fight, right? Um, it's the same thing, you know, in the corporate world, you know, there's a lot of ambitious people. And, you know, you have to learn how to sort of, to manage that, right? Yeah. To point that ambition in the right direction, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, you said something a couple of minutes ago. It did not pass my attention. You said you wanted to become an expert on the people that you lead. Now I want to point something out for the listeners, and then I'd like for you to elaborate. There are great leaders that understand processes and they understand equipment and you know, uh, technical stuff and they're, they've, they've mastered it and they're, they're really good because they've mastered the technical side of stuff, but it's really, really hard to master people. 
and the greatest leaders, every single one of them, it doesn't matter what the industry, it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter, you know, what your goal is. Every great leader that I've ever read about, ever met personally, they all share the same trait, what you just described. They have figured out how to master people, the people that they work with, the people that work for them. But that's not easy because as you said just a moment ago, people change. They're actually in a constant state of change. Mm. And what made the people that work with you do something today may not work at all tomorrow because they've changed. The circumstances have changed. You know, life has changed. So you obviously knew your stuff and you really learned how to learn people well. Can you talk to that aspiring leader, the guy or the gal that's making the jump from just doing their job to now starting lead people do their job. They don't know what it takes to master people. They don't know what it uh, means to become an expert on the people that are, they're about to lead. Can you give them a couple of pieces of advice real quick? Oh, absolutely. You know, first thing I would say is no one cares about your authority. Uh, if, if, if you're using authority, I'm, I'm laughing out loud because it's a hundred percent true. No one gives a flying rip what your title is, man. No one cares. And, and once I realized that, you know, once I was humbled, you know, to that fact, many, many years ago, that's when I decided to be a servant, you know, to people. Um, so the next thing I would say is, you know, so what does it take to know people and to get people to do things? in the right way that contribute towards the mission? Well, the answer is influence, right? And people think influence is, you know, such a mystery. It's, it's not, it's really quite simple, but it takes a whole lot of investment. The first, uh, the avenue to influence is understanding, right? So in Nigeria, we have 13 different nationalities. Now, do you think for one moment I could interact with all 13 of these nationalities from a Western point of view? No. No. You know, I have to sit with these people. I have to have lunch with them. You know, I have to drink a beer with them. You know, I have to be with them in many different settings to really know who they are and what makes them tick. You know, I have to be aware of their cultural norms, right? I have to be aware of what I can and I can't say. I can't just say anything just because I'm a leader. You know, now, you know, that team, we were so close that, you know, we, we, you know, we said a lot of things. It was kind of like being in the military, <laughs> All right. you know, we, we had camaraderie, you know, we really did. Um, and that was one of the harder parts of, you know, leaving, leaving that assignment. But uh, yeah, I would say that, you know, like no one cares about your authority. Don't try to lead through fear. Don't try to always position yourself above, you know, listen to understand, not to respond, try to understand people. That's what I, what I would say. And for the listener right now, it doesn't matter if you work in business. It doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom right now. Whatever walk of life you're in, what you're hearing from him is absolutely gold. Fear will never accomplish what trust and influence will accomplish. You know, knowing people and knowing what makes them tick will always get a whole lot more done than actually offering them a bonus, a pay raise, or threatening, you know, their job. So... Um, obviously you've learned a few things along the way, Bobby. hundred percent, uh, man. A few things. And look, you, you know, I haven't always been perfect either. You know, <laughs> I you failed and me both. Yeah. I failed so <laughs> I failed so many times along the way, but I was always able to recover. Uh, nothing was egregious. And 
you know, when I was 45 and just kind of, you know, I guess we'll get into the book later, you know, I, I had that big success, but, you know, big success often masks um, cracks, right? And, and things that are not going so well. Um, and that's, you know, I've, in my life, I've, I've always had a horror of failure. Like failures was horrible for me, you know, just because of trying to live up to expectations of my parents and not necessarily because they said, Hey, Bobby, be perfect. But like, like I said, it was a tall task just to sure, like man. keep up, keep up. Yeah. You know? of course. So, um, but when I was 45, you know, I learned that there's a constructive side to failure and a destructive side. And, and if I, on the, I was going to say people are on the edge of their seat right now. So you got to tell them what's the difference because there's a lot of positive that can come out of failure or oh, you man. one or the other, you know, so, failure is a uh, number one, it's a, a signal to rearm it's feedback, but it's opportunity to learn where you need to get better. Yeah. Right. Um, failure is an opportunity to learn right now. There's another side of failure, the destructive side where, you know, woe is me and, you know, it wasn't my fault and, you know, you don't learn anything from it. So you, you duplicate, right? If failure, you know, one small failure now can help you eliminate a big failure later. Absolutely. Yep. You know, um, I think some call it, you know, there's a lot of verbiage and, and wordy stuff out there. Some say it's, uh, you know, failing forward or something like that, but you know, I just think there's a lot to learn from failure. And again, as long as it's not egregious, you can, you can recover. Yeah, you, know, you can history, recover. Sure. The history books are littered with examples of guys and gals that have failed again and again and again. But like you said, they learned from it. They grew from it. And then they finally, the pieces finally started to uh, fall into place. And all of a sudden they became some of the greatest leaders in history. I'm thinking of Abraham Lincoln right now, whose life was nothing but one repetitive failure after another. And then all of the pieces fell together and goodness, what an incredible leader because he learned and he grew for, from it instead of just yeah. being defeated by it and given up as a result of failure. Well, here's something too, you know, in, in, in doing my research to come on this podcast, you know, I listened to number one and that's where you're, that's where, (laughs) that's where you articulated, you know, why, why this unbeatable podcast. And, you know, you brought out the quintessential quote about the man in the arena and uh, that quote's actually, it's actually in my book. Um, But people have to realize that, you know, they are the ones inside the Marine, uh, inside the arena with a dusty face and the scars and they're the ones doing it. You know, so don't, don't be so hard on yourself either. Right. I'm my own worst critic. You know, I'm hard on myself. I, you know, again, when I was 45 and I kind of had that, uh, you know, burnout, rock bottom, you know, type thing, I I learned to let go of a few things. I had to. Right. And uh, that was one of the things not being so hard on myself, you know, because there's no, there's no point in it. Yeah. There's no gain. It's like worry, right? Right. How many times has worry ever made something better? Yeah. Right. What well, hasn't? Right. So, you know, why be hard on yourself like that? If you put hand over your heart and say, you know, with the tools and knowledge I had, I did my best, but I still fell short. You know, that's something to actually be proud of. You know, you just take the learnings and, you know, you move forward. Now, if, uh, 
you know, if you didn't do your studying or, you know, you kind of gave a half-hearted effort and you failed, well, then that's on you. Yeah. Right. And uh, I've had both of those, you know, and failures. I was going to say, that's the distinction right there. Yep. Yes. Okay. So you learn a few things along the way. You put what mm. you learned uh, together and you started Rubicon course of action. Um, mm. Can you tell everybody what Rubicon is? What did you set out to accomplish when you started it? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, again, leadership is not taught in so many institutions, right? Um, you know, even in the large company I was in, it, you know, we had some. Unfortunately, it should be taught at every institution at every level, but you're absolutely right. And unfortunately, yeah. in many places, it's not taught at all. So long story short, there's a crisis of leadership. Uh, there's a crisis of uh, teaching folks how to lead. There's a crisis of introducing people to what leadership is, leadership framework, right? Um, and I'm not saying everyone should follow the way I do it, but I'm giving people tools to consider, right? And I'm trying to positively impact people who want to be uh, leaders of themselves. They want to be technical leaders. You want to be a people leader. You know, that's that's the gap that we solve with with Rubicon. Rubicon has two dimensions. Uh, one is live events. You know, they're, they're on demand. Uh, we do a two day, a four day, and we offer a six day retreat, you know, for companies who want to do that. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the retreats are, it's a hundred percent giving you tools that you can use when you walk away. Right. Like we, we're not doing trust falls and, and stuff like that. And if folks want to do that, that's fine. But I'm telling you, you know, we want to do things that are going to give you tools to use the day you you, yeah, you walk sure. away. Uh, simple, effective tools. Uh, second part of that, of Rubicon, is uh, you have a coaching program. It's named uh, Stronger You. It's focused primarily on business owners, founders, and, and executives. You know, if you're pursuing something that's really big, you know, it's, at some point you need help. And uh, I have... I've, People always ask, you know, okay, you know, you're doing this executive coaching, you know, what's your, what's your unique selling point or how are you different? Well, for 34 years, uh, I've been in the trenches on the execution and operation side, and I've had a lot of failures, a lot of successes, and, I, and I've lived through everything people are experiencing. So, you know, when, when people hire me, they are, they're buying my 34 years of experience, Right. I don't, I don't give advice. I give experience. Yeah. That and makes sense. I want to, I want to, yes, it does make sense. And I want to mention who wouldn't pay for somebody else's experience, especially to learn from some of the mistakes somebody else made. So you don't have to make the same mistakes yourself. Of course, you and I are going to still make mistakes, but why wouldn't yeah. you learn from somebody else's mistakes instead of repeating them yourself? Exactly. You know, it's, it's offering people an ability to compress you know, the th 34 years of my experience in, into their life uh, or their operation, you know, whatever they, they choose. And I that leads to, yeah, go ahead. That, that leads to, you know, sort of why I wrote the book. Sure. You know, there's, I there's say, uh, I love the idea of people getting 34 <laughs> years of your experience in a two day, four day, six day uh, yeah. retreat, but ultimately you need to take something home with you. So Bobby, you're telling, you're, you're helping people figure out how to lead you. This yeah. is my segue, just setting you up now to go ahead and talk about the book right now. Yeah. You know, 
we all want to lead others. We all want to lead organizations. Some people want to lead the world. But before you do all that, there's one thing you need to do first. And you need to do with relative excellence, and that's leading yourself. Yeah. Yep. You know, totally agree. Man, it's very important. Uh, again, you know, the whole Rubicon COA company, it's about getting to the root cause of things, not nothing, you know, there's something I call symptom leadership, right? Versus let's get to the core of, of uh, what's going on here, right? And the core of leading ourselves is, you know, our first starts with our character, right? Um, then it goes on to values, right? How many, you know, there's a study. There's a study done a few years back and, uh, you know, I can name it. I can put it in the chat if you want to let the readers, you know, or the listeners uh, see it later. But in that study, it revealed across industry that only 10% of leaders, only 10% of leaders are willing to live the company's values, much less their own. Wow. Right. So, so that 90% are just going to go do their own thing and give lip service to it, but do their own thing. Yeah. So, you know, we do this uh, little exercise in our, our workshops and we ask, give people a pen and a sticky and say, okay, write down your five, you know, core values. And after, you know, after about 10 seconds, say, okay, you know, hands, hands, pens down. Who's got five by, by show of hands, who's got five, who's got four, three. Most people have one or two, if, if that. So you mean to tell me you're living a life of purpose, but you don't know what your core values are? Yeah. Right. So how is that differentiating you from person X? Right. How would you sail the ocean without a compass and a map? Right. Of, of course you wouldn't. So, you know, it's very important that people get grounded in, in what character looks like, you know, character traits and, and values and so on and so forth. And then, you know, after that, you know, we go on to talk about self-trust, which is the precursor to self-belief, which I believe is a precursor to, you know, lasting discipline. Um, you have to have those two things before you really know what, you know, discipline is. Uh, I love chapter 10. It's on perfection. Uh, I give people permission not to be perfect because nothing is perfect. I make a lot of sports analogies in the book because I love sports. You know, I, I really thought I would be an NFL linebacker. It was my first, you know, fo <laughs> right. football is my first love, you know. Um, but, you know, you look at, uh, you know, hitters, you know, if someone's hitting 300 is excellent. So why do you think as an individual, you're going to make 10 out of 10 goals? Yeah, right. You know, you know, it's not about giving people permission not to try, but it's, it's asking them to be excellent versus being perfect. Um, you know, I find when people chase perfection, it can almost become destructive, right? Versus pursuing excellence. And, uh, I, I say that with confidence because I'm a recovering perfectionist, you know, just because of my, my upbringing. Okay. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, people are listening to you right now. They're very interested. When The book dropped in March of this year, um, but where can they get it if they want to buy a copy? Is it both uh, digital and in print? Yeah, both. Uh, we actually did an audio book as well. All right. And, uh, the gentleman who read the book, his name is Shimon Casey. We did interviews between each chapter. So yeah. you get a little, a little bit more context. Little extra if you do the yeah. audio book. All right. Yeah, it's like a little mini podcast in between each chapter. Uh, so I, I thought that was neat. 
So they can find it on Amazon uh, or Barnes and Noble. It's it's on all the major distributors. I'm gonna put a link to your book um, and in the notes to this episode, just so people can find it. But Bobby, I don't let a guest in the on the show or a family member on the show that is served or married to somebody you know in the family of somebody who served without saying personally, thank you, man, for what you've done for our country and the cause of freedom. But also thank you for helping to build the next generation of leaders. As you said, your dad came from the greatest generation. And, um, you know, the only thing preventing the next generation from causing us to go off a cliff and fall into an abyss is somebody handing down great leadership traits to that to the next generation. So thank you for doing that, man. Oh, you're welcome. You know, thank, thank you. Uh, you know, I, you know, for me, service was, uh, was important. You know, like I said, I thought I was going to be an NFL linebacker and that, that didn't work out, you know, but I always knew I would serve whether it was, uh, you know, public service or the military, you know, and then, you know, my dad was, you know, in those three wars and I said, well, you know, I don't really know a lot about public service, but I know a lot from him. Yeah. You know, so let me try my hand at, right. at the military and man, I'm glad I did. It was the best, uh, best four years of my life. You know, there are a lot of trials and tribulations, of you know, in the sh- short four yeah. years, <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it, it set the mood and tone, laid the groundwork for the rest of my life. And, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today, you know, without, without that background. And I would say the exact same thing of my time in the military too, man. Yeah, Obviously, you know. you've served, you continue to serve, and you serve people now by helping yeah. them to, you know, develop character and become the leader that can lead themselves. And that's always going to be your greatest leadership challenge. So thank you for being on this episode with me, Bobby. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it, buddy. Hey, Bobby just said something. I hope that it impacted you while you were driving like it impacted me. I wrote this down right after he said it. If you really, really believe in it, then don't give up. And if you believe in it that much and you don't give up, chances are things are actually going to work out in the long run. It just may be a lot of hard knocks along the way. While Bobby was making that statement, it couldn't help but think. And if you don't believe in it, don't really, really believe in it, then why are you giving so much energy to it in the first place? I hope that you took that little nugget home or something else from my conversation with Bobby Harrington today. Hey, as always, thank you for checking out this podcast. If you just stumbled across us and you're hearing this for the first time, why don't you go ahead and subscribe? Go ahead and hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, or you can subscribe to the video on YouTube and we'll drop another episode next week. But I also want to tell you, follow us on social media. If you just search for at Unbeatable Podcast, you will find us on pretty much every social media platform out there. And we deliver regular content during the week. You'll also find some pretty amazing people. I always like to highlight some of the great people that are highly connected with us on social media. And the person that I want to highlight this week, our fan of the week this week, is Jim Necklace. Jim Thank you for being really engaged. Thank you for being really connected. If you want to get Bobby's book, we're going to give away a free copy of it. 
And all you got to do is to just join the Unbeatable Army, which is totally free. It's our email list where we send you content throughout the week. If you want to be registered for Bobby's book, if you want to get content for us, just go over to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. I'll see you right back here next week. Godspeed. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable.